Welcome to the Real Education Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Bowles, and on this show, I interview remarkable people who think way outside the box in education. To listen to more episodes, learn more about my guests, or become a patron of this ad and sponsor-free show, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. You can also email me at yours truly at blakebowles.com. Now, on to the show. My guest today is Ethan Knight, Executive Director of the American Gap Association. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You are the founder and the director of a relatively new organization, the American Gap Association. Tell us what this is and what it does. Well, for those in the audience maybe who don't know what a gap year is, perhaps you should start there. Uh, Generally, a gap year, it's something that originated uh, primarily out of the UK, though some will argue out of Western Europe um, more broadly. And the idea is to take a year of time, uh, typically between high school and college, to figure out what the heck you want to do with the rest of your life. And so um, originally on the UK side, it emerged out of a desire to fill some space between completion of your uh, secondary schooling to the tests that will then open the door for college. There was a, a good chunk of time there naturally just sort of over the course of their sort of educational pathways. In the States, what has been happening is uh, partially students are, I think a lot of times, getting into college realizing that they don't know what they exactly want to study um, or maybe they are uh, a little bit burnt out of having to go through such sort of incredible academic rigor um, as many do these days to get through high school and get into college. Um, but fundamentally, if you really ask me what it's about, I, I would say a lot of it really comes down to um, um, finding that thing that you love to do. Uh, you know, the classes that, that might um, normally have flushed some of those things out, such as, you know, auto shop from the days of yore or um, uh, woodworking or uh, music. Those are all of the classes that are getting cut from secondary schooling. And so students are walking in with a great degree of theory, but very little real ability to track that theory down to how it affects the things that we do throughout you know, our day-to-day life. And, of course, more importantly, how do those things translate into living a good life, one that, that is uh, uh, meaningful, say, satisfying, um, um, and you know, ultimately something that you want to get up every day and, and go do again and again and again. Um, um, so it, it's out of that that a gap year has emerged. The AGA is really here in many ways. Um, the gap year industry has been around for about 30 years. And the AGA came into the picture um, just two years ago as a way to help students and families and educators too try and figure out how to do a gap year in a way that has the best of possible outcomes Um, the closest things that you could do to safeguard yourself, um, um, whatever that might look like depending on where you go and what types of activities you do. And then, of course, just knowing, um, um, you know, how we as an industry, as a field of of educators, can um, try and make this more and more available to more and more people. Um, um, My career has been about 14 years in the field of gap years. Uh, I've run programs in the field. I, I know what it is to work with students day in, day out. You're on call 24-7 um, in, in strange and random places. The stories that I've um, um, built out uh, could certainly fill my share of novels. Um, I've also worked in the office, and I've started my own organization over the course of my career. 
And throughout it all, um, I've seen the, the numbers of people taking gap years growing. I've seen the interests of gap years growing. Um, and the great challenge right now that we face is, is the cost. How do you make it more available to more people? And so for that, it's one of our goals at AGA is to try and make it more financially um, available, more socioeconomically um, equitable. Um, and one of the ways that we're doing that is not only through scholarships, but we're actually trying to work with the Department of Education to become a Title IV gatekeeping organization, which in essence means that you can use college-level federal financial aid dollars to do a gap year. Let's talk about that path that led you to this position. You said you've worked for organizations, you've started your own. And I know that you have a story of doing your own gap year long, long ago that probably inspired all of this. So start at the beginning. Absolutely. Um, and I'll, I'll refrain from sharing how long ago, um, lest <laughs> I uh, bore your audience to tears. Um, no, certainly. Uh, so my path, um, I, I was going to high school. It was a fairly good high school. I had a great education coming out of high school. Um, um, and initially, Cornelius Bull, he's the founder of the Center for Interim Programs. Um, uh, he's really sort of the, the grandfather of gap years in the States. And um, uh, he came and gave a speak at, speech at my high school. And as I was in my senior year trying to figure out, you know, college, what was that going to look like? Uh, where did I want to go? You know, all of the typical things that you have to ask yourself. What majors might I pursue? Do I want East Coast, West Coast, academic rigor? Where can I get in? Um, where am I going to be successful? All of these, you know, what's the culture of the college? All of these are such big questions. And I remember distinctly thinking like, oh my gosh, if I choose the wrong thing, my life will be ruined. And I know that most students do still to this day feel that way when they're thinking about college. Um, so in walked this shining beam of light, Cornelius, when he started talking about what kinds of options were out there. And at the time, one of the things that he spoke about really struck me. It was to go volunteer rebuilding an old Christian uh, monastery in Turkey. And I wasn't an overly religious person at all. Just the idea of being immersed in a religious environment, um, um, an opportunity to explore my spirituality in a different country. Um, oh, man, I was geared up at that. But then the reality came crashing in. Mom and dad, you know, my peers, um, nobody of my friends were doing anything like this. It was certainly not only off the beaten path, but, you know, probably off the beaten path, um, um, blindfolded with a, a sensory deprivation tank. Um, to give you a sense for how uniformly uh, my friends understood what I was doing. Um, so I, I threw in the towel, to be honest. I went my freshman year to college. I oftentimes refer to that as, as uh, followed the herd on to college. Um, um, you know, nowadays when I'm speaking in front of students, one of my favorite questions is, why are you going to college? And most of them don't have a good answer that's theirs. You know, they can spout a lot of good reasons, but they don't have their own good answer. So, of course, as I went through the, the motions my freshman year, um, I was... Uh, um, uh, probably drinking too much. I was probably smoking too much pot and um, got into it. I just thought, you know, this is meaningless. My freshman year, the, the academic rigor wasn't there. They were still trying to coach people on what the five-paragraph essay looks like, um, as well as I just didn't have my own reason to be there. So um, I, I convinced my parents um, that a gap year was a good option, and I went back to Cornelius to try and see what kinds of options might show up. Um, it is worth noting that when I talked to my mom, it was an, all, an automatic, yes, of course, this sounds great. Quite the opposite. It, you know, I, I, it was probably a, you know, the space between heartbeats 
of when I finished speaking and um, um, my next beat came was when she said no. <laughs> and so I, you know, it, it took some concerted effort to explain, you know, what I was hoping to get out of it, which I think was probably helpful. It, it forced me to reflect on what kinds of things I wanted to be doing and accomplishing out at the time. And, and true to form, still to this day, one of the hallmarks of a successful gap year is walking into it with some degree of intentionality. And so um, when it all got said and done, um, Turkey turned into South America, turned into where I ultimately ended up, um, out of dialogue and into action, I landed in Nepal and um, spent the next seven months traveling through India, Nepal, and Tibet. Um, um, a very brief stint in Thailand that's probably not worth much mention because it was an airport layover. But um, while I was in India, Nepal, and Tibet, the things that I did were everything from three weeks of trekking through the Annapurnas, um, uh, 10 days of silent meditation, um, uh, volunteering at a soup kitchen, living in a thatched hut during monsoon season, interning under a terracotta potist, um, uh, uh, meeting all sorts of people from all different parts of the world. Um, living in a, 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 a Hindu ashram for uh, three weeks, uh, living in a Buddhist ashram for three weeks. Um, um, the things that I packed into those seven months brought me back to a state of being that had a different joie de vivre. And, and I have to say that, that when I initially started it, I think I was quite, um, I, certainly I think it's fair to say, I was quite depressed going into the experience. I just feel like I was felt like I, w I wasn't really engaged in a meaningful existence. I was going through someone else's meaningful existence, but not my own. And over the course of those seven months, spent a great deal of time in reflection and, and quickly came to the, the conclusion that um, uh, my version of success is different than those of my peers, than those of what media was telling me it should be. Um, and, and ultimately, at the end of my gap year, I, I think if I, if I was to sort of, you know, put it into this is the block that I learned, this is, this is the, you know, let's, let's sort of carve this onto a wall somewhere, it's that I already have everything I could possibly need to be successful in life. And, and, and that, that bears sort of breaking down a little bit because um, I already have everything I need. That's not to say that I have everything, but it's to say that I have the access to the resources to navigate there. Um, I, I, can, I, I am a resourceful person. I found that out. I think more people are far more resourceful than they probably give themselves credit. And um, um, so, so in terms of my success, um, you know, what that broke down to for me was I don't care about the material trappings of the world. Really what I care about is having a meaningful and purposeful uh, driven existence. And so that means, you know, I derive a great deal of pleasure out of helping others. I derive a great deal of pleasure out of um, supporting others to find that thing that they're most excited about and then hopefully even figure out how to make that thing um, if not the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the focus of their um, sort of monetary earning, um, at least a, a core p component of it. Ethan, uh, would you call this a, a spiritual experience or some sort of awakening that you had in your gap year at age 19? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, I think um, that's a great way to say it. It was, I'd probably call it more of an awakening Um Spiritual, it's it's still a bit weighted for me as as a term, um, if that makes sense. But um, yeah, certainly it was it was one of those things that I found a great degree of enjoyment um, um, through reconnecting with my own purpose. Uh, you're familiar with um, Thoreau, Emerson, of course. Of course. Yeah, um, that that element of um, um, living a life, but also living a good life. I I, I ended up graduating from college with a philosophy degree, um, um, much to the chagrin probably of my parents. But um, 
Um, part of what drove me to that was the desire to live a good life. And, and I, you know, thankfully I've been fairly well able to do that. And what did you do after your gap year? Did you, um, you finished your degree in philosophy and then what was the next step? Yeah. So, so I went on, to, I went back to my school, um, uh, Willamette University down in, in, uh, Southern, it's, I guess it's Central Oregon, um, well, Western Oregon. Uh, Salem, Oregon, and um, got my degree. It was a dual major, English and philosophy, minor in environmental sciences, and like half a credit shy of a, of a Spanish major. And I ended up doing a study abroad my um, junior year to Tanzania. And as a result of that study abroad, managed to connect some of my contacts through my gap year with some contacts that they were looking for in East Africa that uh, through a, a twisty, windy, curvy course of um, life uh, landed me in a position to work for that organization, Leap Now at the time is what it was called. Um, and uh, I, I honestly, when I started, I was a, a college graduate. I had a heap of debt, just like everyone else these days, and uh, went to live in the owner's basement in a, a converted room in the garage that um, it was it was well apportioned. Don't get me wrong; it, you know, had it, it had carpeting and everything. Um, but I worked in the office and got to see a world of possibilities that blew my mind. I mean, so much of what I had been told you could do with your life was, you know, the average path, uh, uh, sort of you know, sort of the normal path for success. You know, doctor, lawyer, accountant, teacher. Um, engineer. It's like those are the five things that that sort of qualify as quote unquote successful careers. And as I started to look at this database that they have, it was like twenty thousand different options. I mean, I'm talking everything from you know a baboon specialist in South Africa to uh, teaching soccer to to uh, orphan kids in Cambodia, and it was like, oh my god, the world's lid just got blown off, and I had a, a completely different sense of of possibilities to my life. Leap Now is a gap year organization. You're it is, looking for? yeah. So they're a gap year organization based in Calistoga, California now, um, and they run a, a nine month program. Um, um, uh, Sam Bull, who's the owner of that, he um, he's the the son of Cornelius Bull. So um, we we actually got to share conversations about his dad um, over the course of our, our our seven years or so working together. Um, You've been very integrated with this Bull family, I see. It's no bull for sure. Uh, <laughs> I was waiting for that. I was waiting. And, but, and and how long did you work in their basement? And what was your function beyond uh, doing office duties? Yeah, um, it was uh, you know generally it was data entry, but it was also a little bit of um, planning around. They were just starting to run uh, some more sort of concerted group semesters. And um, while I was there, I worked. I, I started studying Aikido in my downtime. But um, uh, for probably the first year, I was in their basement, and then um, the next year spent uh, leading programs, groups, uh, two to Central America, back to back. Um, one as sort of like a, an assistant uh, trip leader, and then another one as a as a sort of a trip leader, you know, full full force. And um, that was three months: Guatemala, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, uh, with groups of fifteen students, is what we had at the time. And um, to be honest, the educator in me that got to see these students have all of these aha moments, those eyes get big, you know, the heart starts beating fast, their faces get a little flushed as they're starting to put together, you know, all of the theory that they've been taught over the years, how it actually meets the people and the realities that we all live with. And it was, it was so wonderful to see that. 
Um, and, and then eventually, uh, it is worth noting that after uh, a year of leading in the field, I decided that I needed to do the, the normal nine to five thing. It's like I wanted to take it off my list. See, see, do I do the nine to five thing, you know, Monday through Friday? Uh, can, am I built for that? Am I cut from that cloth? And so I moved to Denver, Colorado for about six months and picked up some work at the children's hospital translating in their hemonc department um, um, from uh, Spanish to English and English to Spanish. And that was one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my entire life, uh, working with kids who have never known anything other than uh, neuroblastoma, uh, brain tumors, um, other types of cancer. That was just a, an earth-shattering thing so that when they finally called me back at Leap Now and said, hey, do you want to lead another trip to India? Um, I was sitting in the cafeteria of a hospital at the time, um, and uh, it gave me about five minutes before I, I, need, I needed to call them back and say, yes, absolutely, take me back to India. Wow. Uh, how did your path bring you to Carpe Diem, the company that you started? Yeah, yeah, great question. I mean, so I, I, moved, I went back to, to Leap Now, um, worked there for another four or five years, and worked my way up from... Uh, trip led for another year, worked my way up to uh, essentially director of operations and then assistant director and um, picked up a lot of great learning. But at the time, Leap Now was running two different sort of core types of programs. One was a year-long intensive, um, um, sometimes I, I liked to call it a, a deep surgical operation of the being, of the person. Um, and then the, there were the shorter course, the three-month programs that were Sort of more the the the, the afterthought. Um, uh, Leap now really does the year long programs quite well, but this three the three month blocks um, um, with all of the resources for the organization going to the year longs, they didn't have as much in terms of resources to put to the three months, and so uh, I decided to make an offer to buy them, and so bought them and moved them up to Portland. Initially, as uh, they ran, I think it was two maybe three different programs, um, uh, Central America. Um, the South Pacific and an India program, and um, moved them up to Portland, started them under a different name, Carpe Diem Education, and um, poured all of my heart and soul into it. I, I ran it literally out of the upstairs of my house in my bedroom for the first year. Then it took over the entire floor, uh, second floor of my house, and then uh, took over the, you know, at that point I was getting calls at 4 a.m. from some very precocious East Coasters. And, uh, uh, of course, when the call rings and it's in your house, it's time to move. Um, so for a little separation of church and state, then moved the office out. And what initially started as a three-program um, opportunity now is uh, run seven different programs. Uh, college credit's a part of it, um, uh, optionally, but it's experientially done, college credit. Um, and our latest program um, just earned the merit of being uh, awarded a contract with Tufts University, um, it's the Indigenous America program that goes through the Navajo and Hopi Southwest of, of the U.S. And I'd like to get to the part where you break off into a nonprofit and you start thinking bigger. But at this moment, I feel like I have to inject an aside, which has always tickled me, which is that I originally applied to work as a Carpe Diem South America semester trip leader in 2008. And I felt so good about that application. I was 25. I had my wilderness EMT. I had recently gone to South America. And I went through the whole interview process. And I even went up to Portland and interviewed face-to-face -face with you. And when I was back, I was living in South Lake Tahoe at the time. When I was back in Tahoe, I was just 
taking time to mull over this opportunity and thinking how wonderful it was going to be when I got the job and asking myself, quizzing myself with these questions about um, the intricacies of international trip leading. Like, would I really be able to take somebody to a hospital in Ecuador and speak Spanish to a nurse or doctor to, to get them better? Yes, yes, I could do that. So I was sort of coaching myself through how awesome I was going to be. And then I got the email from you saying, sorry, you didn't get the spot. There happened to be 150 applicants for two positions. I don't know if that's if that was normal for you or, or just a 2008 recession thing. <laughs> and, uh, and I was disappointed. And I took a few days to, to let myself be disappointed and then realized that I wanted to lead international trips so badly that I, I believe I wrote you back and said, Ethan, will you help me start my own company? And that company ended up becoming Unschooled Ventures. Uh, which I've been running since 2008, and you helped me get my act together to lead my first trip to Argentina for six weeks with nine teenage unschoolers. Anyways, I, I love that story, and I am thoroughly indebted to you. Just have to formalize that on the record here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, still to these days, you know, one of the things is it's so hard to suss out how someone will perform in the field based on these very short interactions that you have when you have an opportunity to interview someone. Um, obviously, I think for the world, it was better that I didn't hire you because <laughs> the impact and the ripples that you're creating now are far more significant than where you two, I think, have stepped in in that earlier capacity. Uh, for the world, uh, it worked out better. For me personally, I, I don't think it did. I probably should have hired you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very flattered. I appreciate that. Um, okay, so uh, tell me about uh, how you moved on from leading trips, um, organizing trips through Leap, excuse me, through Carpe Diem, and then you, you branched off into a nonprofit arm. Yeah, well, it was two different nonprofits, basically. So when I first started Carpe, um, um, it, it became clear to me that, that you know, we were working with the upper socioeconomic demographic of the country. Um, just simply the amount of money it costs to do this kind of programming, it's fairly prohibitive. I mean, if you're just looking at airfare to get to East Africa, for instance, these days, you're looking at $1,500 to $1,700 just to get there. That doesn't even count any program fees, any expenses, not even insurance or vaccinations. I mean, um, um, malaria medication for three months can be easily as much as four or $500 um, um, and guess who's not going to cover that? Insurance. <laughs> they're, they're like, you want to go to East Africa? Good for you. We're not covering it. <laughs> um, and so uh, in essence, when I started these programs at Carpe, I initially wanted to make a, a larger offering for um, uh, lower socioeconomic demographics, um, underrepresented, underprivileged. Um, there's so many horrible names for these things. Um, um, uh, but ultimately, we all know what we mean. And so I started Carpe Mundi. At the time, it was the International Carpe Diem Foundation, the nonprofit side that has eventually now blown into, it's a really cool program where they take um, a, a three-month uh, sort of fall semester um, locally at Portland Community College or Portland State University. They do a January term to get them ready to go overseas, um, and then they go overseas with Carpe Diem, pro bono, uh, no profits are earned um, for the spring months, and they come back and do an internship. And so we work with about 12 students a year to do that full year-long program and it acts as a springboard for um, for college because they earn a full year of college credit. Um, and so far, we've had 100% stay in college, which uh, has been their choice. If you were to ask me personally, without my Carpe Mundi board hat on, I'd, I'd certainly encourage those that are looking towards a skilled trade to do that over college. But at least they now know what college looks like at the end of the program. 
So, so that's sort of the Carpe Mundi side. That was my first foray into nonprofit, and I can tell you the learning curve on that was steep. Um, and then uh, uh, about two years ago, um, partially um, for the burnout of having to manage all of these students overseas, knowing that call can come in. I mean, you know it quite well, Blake, that, that, that sort of it, it, it has a, a sapping effect on your spirit to know that at 24 hours a day anything could happen. Um, I, I truly consider those that do that work heroic um, because we all care so greatly about the students that we get to work with and the people and communities that we're touching um, and yet you always have to be aware of it. Um, so I, I, took, I took a step back from that but I also took a step back from that because uh, of uh, a need to have a rallying point. I, I oftentimes think of like AGA's role in, in the broader gap year movement as equivalent to what Occupy could have been, Occupy Wall Street. I think so many people believed in what that stood for. We are the 99%. Why are the wealthy just keeping getting more wealthy? This feels off. What kind of America is this we, that we want to live in? And but unfortunately, because of its decentralized movement, I think it, it it sort of sputtered out. And so now they're most well known for buying up student debt from some of the the, the larger for-profit colleges that have really profiteered their way through uh, you know on the backs of students. Um, and so I wanted to to provide that flag, that centralized motion of of you know this is what we represent. Um, so that we could really advance the movement and hopefully make a gap year uh, far more common, um, even a, a, a part of the normal academic process that every young American goes through. So let's talk about gap years and why they aren't more common. And tell me, just historically, um, when did these become a big thing here in the United States? And why weren't they more popular beforehand? Yeah, it's a great question, Like. Um, they really became popular, um, I'd say, starting to kick through the roof right around when the recession hit, the, the Great Recession. Um, um, beforehand, partially it was just sort of, you know, the great statistic that everyone's concerned about is if I don't go directly on to college, I won't get my college degree. And it's such a, um, an unthought about conclusion that college is good for everybody. And, and don't get me wrong, college is good for everybody. Is it the right thing for everybody? That's where I contend there, you know, there's some difference. Um, and, and so I think um, when it really started to gain its, its greatest leaps in momentum was in coinciding with the recession because I think what people were doing was they were looking out at the recession, they were recognizing, gosh, you know, the social contract that I've been sold if I get good grades, if I go to school, then if I go to college and get good grades, then I'll have a great job and a great career and I can have my 2.5 kids, my dog, and my nice house with nice cars. Unfortunately, that they were finding the social contract was falling flat. There was, there's this whole, you know, I remember reading articles of, uh, you know, the unhired generation, um, people that were just, they were graduating from college, couldn't find a job. They had a mountain of debt. And all of this, while at the same time is going on, colleges are becoming more and more expensive. So what you get is you get students who are looking at the prospect of college. Okay, four years of college at an average of around thirty to forty-five thousand dollars per year. The average student is graduating with roughly thirty thousand dollars in college debt, which of course delays their ability to to sort of really act in terms of uh, buying a home and you know having the American dream. They're they're looking out and saying, "Gosh, if, if before I dive into this." 
let's make sure that I want that I, that I can make it count. Let's make sure that if I'm choosing a major, I'm choosing it well and with purpose. Um, a, a story that I oftentimes share was when I initially went to college, my freshman year, sophomore, junior year, senior year, they sit you down your senior year finally and say, okay, you know, you've taken out X amount of money in debt. Some of this is unsecured. Some of it's secured. Some of it's earning interest. Some of it's not earning interest. Some of it's private. Some of it's public. Um, now, if you don't pay it, you know, bad things will happen. And they go off on this litany of all the bad things that can happen. And then they say, but it's okay because you know what you want to do, right? You've all done internships to figure that out. And I remember standing in that classroom looking around at all of my peers as they were looking at us saying the same thing, or thinking the same thing. Uh, why are you telling us this now? Why didn't you tell us this our freshman year? No, we haven't been doing internships. What's wrong with you? And so I, I think as we started to look out, um, we were recognizing that students were, were wanting to have this kind of experience before they go into college, not only to have a better sense for what major they wanted to pursue, not only to have a better sense for whether college was even necessary. I, I've certainly had my fair share of students who uh, took a program. One ended up doing a little bit of rescue work after a hurricane in Guatemala um, and um, um, fell in love with being a firefighter. And now he's a firefighter here in Portland, Oregon. He didn't need to have a bachelor's degree. He chose just to directly go into, um, uh, into uh, firefighting school and, and got accepted to the academy and all that stuff. But he found his, his great dream of a career and it didn't require college. But I think a large, like the, the other piece about uh, this time of reflection beforehand is it really gives you an opportunity to take ownership for what the heck you want to do with your life. And I don't just mean a career. Uh, you know, what we do for work isn't always what we love to do. Uh, you know, there's certainly days that even though I love 99% of my work, some days I'm just like, okay, I'm ready to throw in the towel today. Um, and that's okay. You know, those things are normal. But, but the ability to have the wherewithal of self to say, um, um, you know, what you want to do, to figure out what you want to pursue, to figure out what success looks like for you, like what we were talking about earlier. I think that's really where the great potency of a gap year comes into the picture. And do you think a gap year has the potential to fix this, uh, this problem that you posed of the social contract failing uh, because a student is making a more informed decision? Uh, are you saying that previously you you could go to college and pretty much get any sort of degree and have a good chance at uh, employment afterwards, but that that that's not the case now. I I think I mean as we crawl out of the recession, and, and I was just reading an article today, or maybe it was yesterday, that that still fully a third of Americans um, that were crippled by the recession are still you know in dire means. Um, you know, though though the stock markets may look great and sort of you know we've all kind of moved on the. The collective amnesia of our of our society has hit. Um, I think that's that 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 um, ultimately, when students are looking out at what they want to do with life, I think I think a gap year. I think the social. I think I think the real failing here is that is that there is no social contract. There never was a social contract. Um, you know, we tried to make the social contract, for instance, around um, uh, uh, pension plans, and those guess what? They bankrupt enti bankrupted entire cities. Um, so, so we we scaled back from that. The reality is, we we live in a, live in an uncertain world. We just do. We live in an uncertain world, 
And yet we try and create all of these constructs around which we can have some degree of security and certainty so that we can really ultimately do what? I've always found that, that when there's too much security and safety, I, I do what? I get complacent. I start to fall asleep. Netflix. Exactly. <laughs> Netflix. <laughs> Trust me, there's tons of educational value in uh, Shaun of the Dead. Um, I really do. <laughs> um, um, but I, I do see that a gap year is a, cor- it's a critical part in the overall evolution of a human. Um, and that's the piece that I think that we're failing. It's, there's no such thing as a social contract. There is such a thing as, um, as constant evolution. And we are always evolving. Um, the problem is that most of us aren't aware of what we are evolving towards. And so we're not consciously choosing the directions we want to evolve, partially because we don't know that that's an option and partially because we've never been exposed to the things that uh, a gap year might open you up to. Um, you know, if you do what everyone else does, guess what? Guess what's going to happen? You're going to end up living everyone else's life as opposed to doing what you love to do. And then guess whose life you're living? Ethan, I'm hearing a big argument here for a gap year as a sort of entrepreneurial education that will help you um, see your options and think about issues of risk and and really navigate this world of uncertainty that you just described. Is that accurate? Is there an entrepreneurial aspect to doing a gap year? I I would say yes, absolutely there is. I think I think some people are cut from the cloth of, of being an entrepreneur, and that's great. Some people aren't, um, and that's also great. Um, you know, the world certainly needs all manner of people. Um, I will say that that anybody who takes a gap year, um, especially when there's these you know such such a radical juxtaposition as, for instance, going to a developing country. You're going to look out at, at the way that they do X and see, gosh, back home, I do X differently. I wonder why. And guess what you've just done? You've just seen a problem and begun to stitch together solutions to get through to the other side. Um, um, there's also a great degree of, of, of self-generation, of, of will involved in a good gap year. Um, um, that intention behind it, um, uh, that, that sort of is one of the hallmarks of a successful gap year, that intention, it really, if, if done well, it opens the door for an individual, I think, to begin the process of understanding what motivates them. And only once you understand what motivates you, can you understand what motivates those that are around you. That's, that's always been my contention. I don't, I'm sure there's psychiatrists that would probably say otherwise. Of course, there's also you know, House representatives that are banging snowballs to the floor in Congress and saying that that's proof positive that uh, climate change isn't happening. Um, um, but but that's, you know, certainly I think there's something to be said about um, um, the entrepreneurial aspects of going out into a strange environment, um, identifying uh, something that you want to do and patchworking yourself through it to get to the final destination. So whether that's a, a sort of the simple logistics of going from point A to point B in a completely foreign land where everything, you know, even the signs aren't in English and, and you have to start sort of, you know, navigating that. What you're doing is you're teaching yourself entrepreneurial skills. Um, you're exposing yourself to a different audience. And, um, you know, certainly I think especially as we get into a global marketplace, one of my greatest advocacies around international education, be it study abroad, be it uh, a gap year that's done overseas, um, is that at some point in everyone's career in this day and age, you are going to be working with, either working over or working under someone from a different culture. 
and understanding what their motivations are um, uh, is very significantly going to be um, impactful to your overall ability to, to, to affect positive outcomes as a part of that organization. I think that this is an entrepreneurial um, skill set that you build. And it sounds like it's, a, it's not entrepreneurial in the narrow sense of being able to start your own business, but more in the sense of becoming a self-directed person or I might venture a self-directed learner who, like you said, you know, you get, you're in a foreign country, you got to get from point A to point B, there's no clear roadmap. That is an entrepreneurial challenge in my, in my vision, um, even if not everyone who does a gap year is starting their own company immediately afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there any ways that gap years are still misunderstood? Yeah, I mean, there is. Uh, um, you know, I think what's what's really cool. So one of the great reasons, you know, like I was saying earlier, that sort of flag around which the industry or the field can rally. Um, um, I was talking to uh, Laura Bernstein, one of um, Senator Ron Wyden's um, policy directors. It's her education, his education director in D.C., and we were we were commiserating on the the recession. This is a few years ago, and and she pointed out, I think rightfully so, that one of the things that's really been great is. We now have to make decisions based on information rather than, oh, that makes sense. A lot of policy decisions and funding decisions in government, for instance, initially were like, oh, this sounds good. You seem like you're good people to do it. Let's go do it. And, of course, a lot of money got wasted. Um, uh, and nowadays, though, instead, it's, it's great. This sounds good go do the research, come back with your data, and then we can make an informed decision. And so one of the things that we've been really forcing ourselves to do is to really quantify some of the details that we have. Um, so for instance, one of the areas that we're misunderstood in is that if you don't go directly onto college, you're not going to get your college degree. And generally that's true. Um, so historically, if you look at the reasoning behind that, it's, it's uh, let's say I go pick up a job, I have a steady source of income, I can be independent, Gosh, this feels good. I live on my own. I make my own schedule. Why go to college? This sounds pretty good. And so that's one of the biggest reasons why people don't go directly onto college after, um, uh, if they, if they, uh, yeah, why they don't complete college if they don't go directly onto college. In a gap year, though, the outcomes are quite good. Uh, Ninety percent go back to uh, go go to college within a year of completing their gap year. Um, uh, one of the caveats to that is that it's got to be um, uh, an intentional gap year. So. For instance, working at Dairy Queen for a year um, won't probably confer the same benefits as going to, to, to do service in uh, an impoverished part of the world. Um, uh, another probably common misconception I think has to do with um, um, what a gap year is. I do hear from people, oh, a gap year can be just a year of working at Dairy Queen. Um, and I shouldn't harsh on Dairy Queen without um, also um, saying that I probably added uh, to at least a few of their employees' retirement systems by the amount of blizzards <laughs> that I eat on a on a road trip. Oh, uh, thank God for blizzards! <laughs> They've gotten me through many many a road trip. Um, it's just a it's a it's not only just a treat, but it's also good for the soul. Um, so you see gap years as necessarily a, a more holistic um, experience where you're not just doing one job. You're not you're not just doing one thing. You're giving yourself a variety of experiences as as intercultural as possible to really open up your vision. Yeah. Uh, um. What we so it is worth noting that when we first designed what a you know the American Gap Association, we had to define what we wanted to talk about as a gap year. Um. Because um, a lot of people will play a lot of fast and loose things with it and say it's great, but but it might not have the same benefits. And it is also worth noting that the vast majority of gap students are doing it independently. 
and hopefully if we have time we can get to that. But but what what AGA defines a gap year as is satisfying five main sort of you know core themes. Um three of them are experientially focused. Um so of the, of the experiential one is um, um reflection. Um great learning doesn't happen out of an experience until it's reflected upon. Of course, AGA doesn't say that that has to be a paper. It could be a journal. It could be music that you write. It could be a painting. Um, some degree of reflection and, and a large part of what we want to do is, is allow enough uh, broad opportunities for people to take a gap year that, that if you are of an artistic ilk, that can be, you, you know, your, your sort of reflection can be uh, uh, painting or music. If it's uh, more engineering or scientifically focused, um, your particular ilk, then it could be uh, designing an experiment and, and sort of running that through to completion. Um, so there's reflection. There's also self-governance. You have to have some skin in the game. Um, and then the last one from the experiential side of things is uh, appropriate mentorship. Um, and part of that is a safety mechanism um, so that, uh, you know, a lot of, I found a lot of young Americans don't know, for instance, when a cut is really bad and warranting, you know, a doctor visit. Um, so a lot of times they'll just sort of wait until it's really bad. And uh, at that point, you got to evacuate. Um, so a part of it's safety, but part of it's also having some supervisor there, a mentor, an intern coordinator, a local, um, a, another student or, or, or a teacher to be able to um, call you out. It's like, wow, it looks like poverty in this particular instance really hit you hard, Joe. Uh, let's talk about what that looks like for these people. Let's talk about what that looks like for you so that you can really milk the moment for as much as it can have. Um, and then the other two categories aren't necessarily experientially focused, but it's it's the ability to see things from another perspective. Um, um, in, in the states, and especially in this digital era, it's very easy to surround yourself with only like-minded opinions. And I think that that's uh, that's where radicalism really has an opportunity to flourish. That's where um, learning has an opportunity to get shut down. Um, and then the the last of the five is. Um, challenging of your comfort zones. Um, I've always found that you learn best when you're on the edge of what's comfortable. Um, when, when everything feels homely and, and you're covered in a nestled blanket with a cup of hot tea in your hands, um, you're not really going to be digesting great amounts of learning. If you're reading a book and that book is putting you into the space of pushing your comfort zone, then that's something different. But if it just looks like more of the same, People tend to fall asleep, especially young people. They've, they've been taught fairly well through, I think, a lot of them, their, their, their secondary school education, that uh, sleeping is a very good use of time um, in, in an academic setting. <laughs> so I'm wondering what your take is on these self-designed or DIY or independent gap years, because you did one yourself in Asia when you were 19, uh, but then you've highlighted all of these um, aspects of gap years that that can be missed. And if a program is not aware of, of these five different characteristics you outlined, um, then they might not be offering a very satisfying experience, or it might just turn into something like a, a bunch of people going and doing a backpacking trip around Europe. And it's, it's not really what a gap year could be. So what is your take on independent gap years at this point? Yeah, honestly, I mean, not only did I do it, um, um, it's also where the majority of young Americans are doing gap years. Uh, and it's it's an, a, a, a well-informed guess that roughly forty to fifty thousand young Americans are taking a gap year each year. Of that, probably thirty thousand of them, you know, maybe two thirds or three quarters, are doing something independent. 
Um, and, and, and I personally, I mean, if you look at this sort of self-directed, this self-authorship, this uh, entrepreneurial element that we're talking about, the ability to go off on your own, uh, it's pretty amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and, and I think is something that's well worth applauding. The, the, from my perspective, the great concern is really safety. And this is, you know, probably a hallmark of meeting getting older. Um, um, dare I say it, I, I was uh, playing an Ultimate Frisbee game uh, not too long ago and, and finally found myself on the old crew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all downhill from here. but They're going to um, liquidate you and feed you to the young soon. <laughs> Isn't there a movie about that? Um, and uh, so I do think, yeah, that independent piece, it can be incredibly powerful and very potent. Um, from a safety perspective, I have some concerns um, that's primarily my lens and the lens behind which the, uh, the AGA standards for GAP organizations were built. Um, and so generally where, where my exhortation for young people doing a GAP year is, um, one, uh, uh, start with more structure and work your way into less. So, you know, if you're going to do an independent one, please do. Do your research, though. Know that you're not, you know, there's, a, there's an organic farm in New Zealand where the people there love to focus on finding UFOs. If you don't do your research, you just think you're going into an organic farm because you want to learn about uh, agriculture, um, you're going to find yourself sorely disappointed and maybe a little bit weirded out. Um, um, not to say that UFOs aren't real. I don't know. Uh, you know I'm looking <laughs> up outside right now. Um, but I, I do think that that sort of uh, the, the ability to start with more structure where someone can support you should something bad happen is is really the, the the crux of my of my encouragement? Start with more structure. Work to work towards less. So, um, uh, oftentimes, what I encourage or, uh, individuals to do is is think of your gap year as as a full year with maybe two to three distinct chunks. Where your first chunk is maybe more structured. Maybe it's an organized program. Maybe it's uh, uh, you know maybe it's uh, a program through Leap Now. Maybe it's something um, through uh, Om Prakash. They've got a great independent program, for instance that has a video uh, Skype uh, element where you're, you have a, a sort of a mentor there to make sure that you're okay, start your first trimester that way and then do the other two fully independently because at that point you, you've traveled well. You know it's shocking the number of young Americans, for instance, who don't know that, uh, that when you're um, getting a visa for another country, you actually have to send in your passport um, or uh, vaccinations or uh, cross-cultural norms. Um, um, certain things are incredibly offensive in other countries. Um, um, or if you're a, a, a single woman traveling, say, for instance, to India, um, um, you want to know how to keep yourself safe because uh, there's some things that can happen to you. We are pretty much out of time, but I know that you are really passionate about education reform, and I'd like to close with this question. Um, if there's one thing we could do in education reform that could perhaps lessen the need that so many young people have for gap years that we could somehow fulfill, we could provide something that a gap year does, but earlier in the K through 12 space, what would you do? Uh, get him off the, off, off the, uh, get him off the treadmill. Um, and, and, uh, basically I think, um, I saw that recently on your blog, you had posted a new interview with John Taylor Gatta, who's also one of my, just, I mean, I, I hold the guy in such tremendous esteem. Um, and one of the things, one of his great critiques of the current educational system is that it, we, we treat everyone the same. We run everyone through the same mechanisms. 
And, and I think it's kind of ironic that for the students who are struggling the most, states now mandate that you have to have an individual learning plan. Um, uh, what about all of the other students? We all learn individually in different ways. Um, and I think that that's one of the greatest treasures of, of humanity. And unfortunately, uh, you know, people are, are sort of, I think in my mind, being um, uh, catered to, treated to be the same. Um, um, and that's squandering a, a tremendous amount of, of creativity and um, curiosity that in our young people. Um, and that's going to cost our society gravely. Uh, it already is. Um, you know, I think, again, to be a, a state representative coming to Congress with a snowball in your hand claiming that, that climate change isn't real and, and calling that an informed position, um, um, you know, he was educated by our society and elected by our society to represent our society. And, um, you know, I don't know the guy. I, I certainly have nothing against him personally. But to use that as a metaphor, it just smacks of, of the um, lack of awareness that um, the rest of the world is, I think, in many ways, rightly critiquing our, our culture for. My guest today has been Ethan Knight. Thank you, Ethan, for being on the show. Thank you very much, but I appreciate it. This is the Real Education Podcast. This show is produced with the assistance of Zen Zenith, who also created the music. For more episodes, visit blakebowls.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.